Well, we have been, we've been taking Revelation chapter 17 in small chunks because it is difficult. At the outset of this chapter, one of the seven angels with the seven bowls tells John that he's going to be shown this judgment on the prostitute. And then the prostitute is described in a kind of uh, abominable splendor. She's Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the, the mother of the earth's abominations. And she's drunk on the blood of the saints. That's how the chapter began. Chapter 17, in the middle of the chapter, John is marveling, he's perplexed, and he's told the angel's going to describe to him the, the, the mystery of this woman and the beast. And we saw in the middle of the chapter this array of images that were all different ways of describing the Roman Empire, or at least first the Roman Empire, by implication any coercive system. And finally, some end-of-history manifestation of the same beast-like forces. And so today, finally, the angel gets around to telling John what he had promised to tell him in verse 1. And that's namely the judgment on this woman prostitute figure. Now, this is a judgment which has already been depicted in the seventh bowl in chapter 16. And here it is unfolded again. So again, just to briefly give you the big picture, there are seven seals, and then the book wraps around with seven trumpets, which look at the same panorama from the first century to the end with a little more intensity, and then it wraps around with seven bowls, and the bowl judgments focus on the end because they're total judgments. That takes you through chapter 16. And then all John is doing from there out is he's moving the protagonists of the church off the stage one at a time in the reverse order that they were introduced in the book. So Babylon was introduced last. She gets dealt with first. Then the beast, then the false prophet, then then the dragon. That's all he's doing. It's very simple in that sense, the high-level picture, and it's always good to reorient yourself to it. Um, So following our text this morning... This judgment here, judgment on Babylon, will be lamented by the world and celebrated by the saints all the way through the first half of chapter 19. So, you'll have to get yourself mentally prepared for a few weeks of the judgment on Babylon. John spends a long time on it. Um, So, we're going to look at the text under the three headings. That are there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The woman, the civil war, and the purpose of God. So first the woman. So this is Revelation 17 in verse 15. The angel says to John, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Now this shouldn't be new at this point. Right, because we've been saying throughout the series that the, the chaotic, raging seas are the nations. It's an image of the nations. Here, John tells us explicitly that that's the case. The waters on which the woman sits are peoples, multitudes, languages, and nations. This is the seventh, believe it or not, and the final time that that fourfold designation for the nations is used in the book. Fourfold Represents the whole world. Seven is a number of fullness. Babylon is that 
fullness of perfection, of worldwide influence. That's what John is speaking of here when he speaks of the Babylonian harlot. Now, of course, remember, Revelation is written to real churches like like this congregation in Asia Minor in the first century, and they would certainly see in this a reference to the city of Rome. It's the city of Rome who sits astride the nations in her seductive luxury, together with the beast, which is the empire's power, empire's military arm. She's the one who guarantees economic trade and stability for her subjects. And this is confirmed by verse 18. The woman that you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. There is no doubt who this woman is and who this city is if you're a first century reader in Asia Minor. This is a woman, a city woman who has royal authority as the seat of the empire and the kings of the earth. And that means Rome's client kings. They're her, they're her, her clients, her political allies. So again, just as a reminder, it's helpful to think of it this way. Generally speaking, when John talks about Babylon, he, th- he means the empire viewed from the perspective of its economic and cultural seduction. When he talks about the beast, he means the empire viewed from the perspective of its political military might. Beast is might, Babylon is seduction. It's the same reality as in view, basically, though, from two perspectives. Now, there are some who take the harlot city to be Jerusalem. And the imagery in this text, as we shall see, is most definitely drawn from Old Testament depictions of faithless Israel. But it's important to see, this is a description of international prominence, of a city which has worldwide political and economic dominion, and it goes far beyond anything that could be predicated of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Right, the Babylon whose fall is narrated here, and it's narrated more fully in the next chapter, we'll see it even more clearly there, is the dominant world economic power, as a city goes. She's the New York City. She's the financial capital of the world. Jerusalem in 70 AD was, in fact, at the lowest worldwide point of its influence for centuries. It's an economic non-entity. This harlot city falls at the height of her prosperity and her international power. Only the city of Rome, only of her, not of Jerusalem, could it be said, as chapter 18 says, that she deceived all the nations, that all the kings of the earth were in league with her. So the woman is Rome. And there is little doubt about this in the scholarship on Revelation. Like the beast, though, she can reappear, right, as the cultural power of subsequent empires. So that's the woman. The second point is the civil war. In verse 16, John is is told, the beast and the ten horns that you saw will hate the prostitute. Last week we saw that these ten horns were kings that are allied uh, with the beast, Rome's client kings. So, this is a difficult passage, but again, the point is simple. The point here is that the alliance between the military power and the economic system, between the beast and Babylon, will disintegrate and unravel. 
That's the key point. The, 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 the alliance between military might, cultural seduction, is going to unravel. The military might of the empire will, as is frequently the case, destroy the culture and the economic system which supported it as it becomes overextended. So it's a statement about the instability of these kind of regimes. So earlier in this chapter, we saw that the beast and this coalition of kings wage war on the lamb. And here we learn something in addition to that. In addition to that, they also turn on the Babylonian prostitute with which they are allied. So there's a kind of blind rage that these civilizations have, a kind of hatred for God. They wage war on the lamb, but in doing so, they end up destroying their own civilization. Killing Christians is really bad for your culture. Right? There are no states that are persecuting states where you can say, but we have a wonderful Bill of Rights for other people. So evil kingdoms in their hostility to God end up devouring and destroying themselves. That's what John is saying. When he says these kings and the beast are going to turn on the woman, he's talking about the empire turning on itself. Total militarized states end up destroying their own economic wealth. And John is prophesying that to be the future end of the empire. And you get this assault on the prostitute. Again, this is symbolic language for the empire unraveling. It's graphically described in the second half of verse 16. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now remember, this same... It probably doesn't need to be said here, but in the wider culture, people look at verses like this and say, the Bible supports domestic abuse. Right? This is a complete misreading of the text. The text is about the unraveling of the, the Roman Empire using the imagery of a prostitute. Remember, this same destruction was depicted in chapter 16. Babylon is destroyed there. How is she destroyed there? She's pictured as a city which is cut into three parts by, a, by an earthquake. So, so, so the text does not endorse earthquakes. It doesn't endorse domestic violence. It's apocalyptic, prophetic language. That probably doesn't need to be said in this room, but you'd be surprised how much it needs to be said in the broader culture. Um, and so in any case... It's important for us to see that John has this set of images and they're fluid. When he talks about the destruction of Babylon, he can talk about a prostitute being burned. Or he can talk about a great earthquake. And this language here, which is very graphic language, it it comes, however, from various Old Testament images of Israel. Apostate Israel, who has consorted with ancient Babylon. And thus will be destroyed by Babylon. We heard this in the Old Testament reading today from Ezekiel 23. You saw this language. right? The prophet there says, now here he is speaking, God is speaking to his own bride, to Israel. And says that the Babylonians are going to take you and they're going to devour you by fire. They're going to strip you. They're going to leave you naked. right? Your whoring will be uncovered. And so... You have God speaking of his own people. At desolate, 
naked, devoured, burned with fire. The irony here is that Babylon, which once inflicted this fate, now suffers this fate. That's the reversal John does. Babylon once inflicted this fate on faithless Israel. Now Babylon, the great Babylon, is going to suffer this fate. So, that's fairly clear, but, the, but I think the text hits closer to home than that. Because those who ally themselves with Babylon, who in John's words, fornicate with her, will be judged with her. And there are indications here and throughout the book that the faithless church, the, the apostate church, the churches which abandon the gospel, are a part of, or at least allied with Babylon. It is possible for the churches to take Babylon's side. They regularly do this. Right? They become co-opted by corrupt states. Sometimes I think there is nothing that our elite culture could propose that would not get some denomination or some set of Christian religious leaders to stand up and endorse it 15 minutes later. It regularly happens that churches stand up and endorse the most abominable things. And so you have imagery here of nakedness. And remember, of course it's a lot to remember. It's way back. I know it's been a long series. But there was a warning to the church of Laodicea. And they were told they need to buy garments to clothe themselves so that the shame of their nakedness not be exposed. Like they, you do not want to be implicated in this kind of Babylonian seduction. The saints are warned to keep their garments on, to not go about naked and exposed. We saw that in chapter 16. But there's also a reference here to to the devouring of flesh. Remember the fate of Jezebel in the Old Testament? In 2 2 Kings 9, she's devoured by dogs. And Jezebel, we saw earlier, is something of the presence of Babylon in the local churches. Babylon is not just out there. Babylon can be right in here or right in here. There's no hermetically sealed place to escape from Babylon. Even Israel's judgment by fire in 70 AD could be seen as a picture prefiguring the judgment enacted here. Or another way to put this is, God enacts this kind of judgment on his own people. Surely he will enact it on the enemies of his people. So now, I want to step back a little bit. If you read the Old Testament prophets, throughout, there's this depiction of a sort of cataclysm. It's depicted as an end-of-history cataclysm. And it includes, you can see in these texts, in the Old Testament, for example, this is in Ezekiel. You can find this in Haggai. You can find this in Zechariah. This end-time cataclysm is depicted as something of a civil war. We have a civil war in this text. And earlier in Revelation 6, when the seal judgments were unleashed, the red horse went forth, and the red horse symbolized Forces whereby men slay one another. The red horse unleashed a kind of violence in the earth. Of man against man. 
But all those descriptions are kind of brief and they're general. Here you get something more specific. Here you're told the political and military powers turn on the civilization that they fostered and they attack it. And so here we have a little more light. This is a picture of the self-destructive nature of evil empires. That's what this text is. So the big point to grasp here is this. Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. And thus it must fall. So you have this hostility. The beast and his allies against the lamb. And that's the very weapon by which Babylon, the beast's royal consort, is destroyed. So the empire strikes back against itself. You cannot maintain the dignity of the human person in a regime which is at war with the living God. You cannot maintain it. So in the context of the early church, this means that the Roman forces of violence and conquest and bloodshed, which sustained the great Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the infrastructure, the roads, the coins, the transportation, that those very forces will eventually lead to the destruction of those very things, and that is in fact what happened in the 5th century. So, the final point is the purpose of God. They do this, the beast and the kings, verse 17 says, because God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. This is yet another, there have been many, another statement of the absolute sovereignty of God over evil men, over evil kingdoms. Now this is again, probably something that doesn't need to be said in this room. We, we know this, we're reformed people. Proverbs 21 tells us that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. It's not just your heart, it's the heart of kings and rulers, which, are, which is in God's hand. And he turns them as he turns the rivers. And so you have this raging, conspiratorial madness of the nations in verse 16. And it says, this is put into their hearts of kings by God himself. So among the many virtues of Revelations, it, it is perhaps the strongest book in the Bible. In its consistent assertion of this central truth, God is king. And as king, he is sovereign over, in, and through even evil and evil plans. It's very important to see that. We don't live in a, in a dualistic universe, you know, where God and evil forces are battling it out and, and somehow we're not sure what the outcome is. It's not the case. Now, of course, it's important to say this as well. All of these things are done freely by these Bestial kings. There's no suggestion in Scripture ever, anywhere, or here that God is the source of evil or that guilt attaches to God. People do what they do freely. They have liberty. God is not the author of sin. They do things contingently. If I want to drop this bulletin, it's up to me. I'm a real cause. I have integrity. I, it's contingent. If the bulletin drops, it's completely contingent on whether I decide to drop it. But if I decide to drop it, God has eternally decreed that I decide to drop it. If I decide not to drop it, God has eternally decreed that I decided not to drop it. 
I'm totally free. God's completely sovereign. That's the biblical picture. You can read this in the wonderful one-paragraph description in Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 3, which is a spine of discussion or statement of the matter, as you will find. So, we are up against the mystery of providence here, but we should note that for John, as with the rest of the biblical authors, he doesn't shy away from this, right? He uses the language of divine ordering. God put it into their hearts. So, this is what a kind of evil, self-destructive civil war does. It carries out God's purpose. It's hard to, to believe that sometimes. There are places in the earth today where you would, you would think, how can this possibly be the carrying out of God's purpose? Now, I don't purport to be able to unravel those kinds of questions, but I do think it's important for us to remember that the same sovereign purpose of God is seen supremely, supremely, in its most vivid colors when the kings of the earth conspired to crucify the Lord of glory. And and Peter tells us of that event in Acts chapter 2. Peter says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan, the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, if we struggle with this doctrine, we're going to have to ask ourselves this question. Is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ the central evil in in human history? And was God sovereignly working in and through it? Did God ordain it? Did God plan it? This is certainly what the early church thought. In Acts chapter 4, the the early Christians are praying and they quote Psalm 2. They say, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. And then they interpret Psalm 2 in light of Jesus' crucifixion. They say, for truly in this city, that is in Jerusalem, they were gathered together, Lord, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel. Why were they gathered together? The early church continues to pray. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So it is here. So it is here. The kings carry out God's purposes by being of one mind. They're united in evil intent. They freely hand over their power to the beast. And so they rage. They rage against the lamb, but it's self-destructive rage. God makes, the psalmist tells us, he makes even the wrath of men to praise him. This is a hard thing because we, we are, I think we are by nature inclined to think the good things come from God, the bad things come from the devil, that sort of a thing. So this happens, verse 17 tells us at the end, until the words of God are fulfilled. Notice the words are plural. All the words of God. All the promises of the prophets are fulfilled in the final destruction of this Babylonian system. All the Old Testament, all the apocalyptic and prophetic predictions, as confusing and as difficult as they can be, in the machinations of the beast and his allies, they are fulfilled. 
This happens so that all the words of God are fulfilled. And so the beasts of history, especially the beast Babylonian systems, are presided over by the sovereign God. And they're done so in such a way that his holy word is fulfilled, that his purposes come to pass. That's a comforting thing. It reminds me of Luther's wonderful hymn, you know, that word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. That word comes to pass. And so we've come to the end of what is, I think, pretty clearly the most difficult chapter in the book. If you're a little dismayed and disoriented, I encourage you to hang in there. It does get clearer and simpler next week. It's still going to be about the fall of Babylon for a while. But it's, it's put from a different angle and it's not as complicated as chapter 17. But I want to make three brief applications, some of which we've heard before as we close here. First, the first one's this. It's precisely over the stuff that repels us. Right? The, um, the beastly stuff, the ghastly things of history that we must assert and that we must confess and that we must trust that God is sovereign. It simply won't do to try and protect God from this because the prophets and the apostles don't do that in Holy Scripture. We, we proclaim that he's, he's innocent. He's innocent. But he is utterly sovereign over these things. Because if he's not sovereign here, then huge swaths of history escape his sovereign control. It won't do to assert God's sovereignty over the good and pleasant things and not assert it over the beastly Babylonian things. And Revelation does not allow us to do that. Now, as always, and this is important, this is not to become a matter of philosophical speculation. It's never put that way in Scripture. This doctrine of this sovereign God is to afford you, it's there to afford the saints comfort and consolation and hope and assurance. Right? And in fact, in one sense, all Christians agree with this. Right? When difficult or unwanted or apparent disasters, things which seem to be unraveling our own lives, intrude, we, we, we have recourse to this God who's sovereign, who is our consolation, who is our shepherd, in whose hands we rest. And there is nothing better than that. There is nothing better for the church and there's nothing better for you than embracing the absolute sovereign goodness of this God. That you are in his hand at every point. So that predestination in the New Testament is not a philosophical speculation. It is about comfort in life and death. It is about Christians fleeing their homes in Syria and northern Iraq. It is for them. And it is for you. It is for you. So, that's the first application. And second is here, and as throughout the book, there's this warning. Right? There's this warning. The church can consort with Babylon in various forms. And if we do so, we run the risk of being implicated in the judgment of the heart. And third... A word which I hope brings some good cheer. 
It's hard to bring good cheer out of a passage like this, but I hope to try a little bit. And it's, it's this. Evil is an intrinsically self-destructive thing. This is great news. Right? Not only is it intrinsically self-destructive, it's stupid. Right? It goes against the grain of the universe. It cannot last for long. Reality always has its day. Creation always asserts its order. It always gets the final word. I think it was Jefferson who said, you can drive nature out the front door, but she comes in as soon as you turn around to go back in the house. You can war with nature and reality and truth for a while. And the claims of these total states They can only be made good for a little while. They always, always, always end badly. I mean, eventually, like Napoleon, these guys attack Russia. They destroy themselves. It's not going to end well for the North Korean regime. That's not to say that the damage isn't incalculable. It's just to tell you we know the outcome. It's not going to end well for Bashar Assad. He's either going to be convicted of war crimes or he's going to be executed. We can virtually predict this. I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but you you just have to have a pulse to know this. It's not only is it not going to end well; it is ending before our very eyes poorly. You can only be a beast for a little while. Again, I'm not minimizing the damage these beasts can do. The Soviet regime did incredible damage in 70 years. But nevertheless, evil is an intrinsically self-defeating reality. And we have a sort of cosmic scope of things that we see in John. And he reminds us that the rulers of this age are coming to nothing, as Paul says. God is emptying them out, bringing them to nothing, nullifying them. So again... Our task is clear. We are witnesses. And that means you have to cling to Jesus and to his word. You can't witness without some kind of immersion in Holy Scripture. You'll have nothing to to declare. And it's it's your immersion in Holy Scripture which will keep you from being co-opted by the world. We witness, we trust the sovereign purpose of God and the words of God will be fulfilled. And so we're confident. We are confident about the future because we are the people of the God who raises the dead, who calls the things which are not as if they were. And we resist. We resist the whore. We resist the deified state. And that means... The form of our resistance is really spiritual disciplines. Word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship. If you ask, what's the form the resistance takes? It takes that form. The basics of Christian obedience. That's what we do. We witness, we trust, we resist, and we watch. Because God causes these forces to devour themselves. So, be of good cheer. The one crucified by the beast and by the beast's Babylonian consort has overcome the world.
And in him, you are more than a conqueror. Amen.